Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this mor- the subject of this morning's passage, Luke 4, verses 16 to 30, is, I think you will agree with me, not a pleasant subject. The subject is Nazareth's rejection of Jesus. More specifically, the subject is the Nazareth synagogues, or to put it another way, the Nazareth churches, the Nazareth congregations' rejection of Jesus. It's not a pleasant subject. And you may wonder why a sermon on this passage? Why choose such a heavy subject to preach on this morning? Does the pastor think we're we're like those people in Nazareth? They're fair questions. And I want to be clear, I did not choose this passage. I did not choose this passage because I think the monarch free reformed congregation is like the Nazareth congregation in Jesus' day. I chose this passage, first of all, because after thinking and praying about what to preach, this passage caught my attention. And secondly, and and really more importantly, I chose this passage because it shows us how real and how serious the danger of rejecting Jesus is. You see, Nazareth congregation was Jesus' hometown. It was where he he grew up. If anybody knew Jesus, it was the people who lived in Nazareth. And so you would think that of of all people, these people, or at least the the religious ones in Nazareth, the the synagogue worshipers, the the churchgoers, would be most willing to hear Jesus, most willing to believe in him. But that's not what happens, is it? Instead, these, these church-going people, the, the, the ones most familiar with Jesus, they reject him. They refuse to believe him. They even try to kill him by throwing him headfirst over a cliff. How real, how real the danger is of rejecting Jesus. You see, if rejection of Jesus can happen in a synagogue in first century Nazareth, It can happen also in a church in 21st century monarch. It can happen here. And here's the thing, it won't be as obvious as it was in Nazareth. Jesus Jesus is not with us in the flesh like he was there. And so, of course, it's impossible. It's impossible to literally go and and, and try and throw him head first over a cliff. But beloved, rejecting Christ doesn't have to be so obvious. We can look like good moral people. We can pay attention in church. We can read the Bible. We can do family worship. We can even marvel at the Lord's gracious words. We can sense the power of his message, and we can still reject him. And there are many ways we can do this. We can reject Jesus Christ by ignoring him. We can reject Jesus Christ by refusing to admit our need of him. We can reject Jesus Christ by resisting his call to faith in him. We can reject Jesus Christ by choosing to sin. We can reject Jesus Christ by continuing in sin and hardening ourselves in sin instead of humbly confessing and repenting of our sin and fleeing, fleeing to him. Rejecting Jesus is a real danger. 
also for us, for me, and for you. In this passage, congregation, unpleasant as it is, it's God's way of alerting us to this danger. It's his gracious way of warning us to take care, never to reject Christ in any way. And if we have been, if we are rejecting Christ also this morning, it's his way of urging us to repent and to flee to him, to put our faith and our trust in him for the first time or again. And so with God's help and my prayer, my prayer with this sermon is that God would give us ears to hear. With God's help, let's consider this passage, Luke 4, verses 16 to 30, under the theme, Jesus rejected in his hometown. We'll notice three things in connection with this. First, his unaccepted claim. Secondly, his unheeded warning. And thirdly, his unsettling departure. So first of all, notice especially in verses 16 to 22, we have Christ's unaccepted claim. Luke tells us in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus, sometime after he had resisted Satan and his temptations in the wilderness, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And he quickly became a sensation. His preaching and his teaching in the synagogues of Galilee as he was going around was powerful. Luke tells us in verse 15 that he was glorified by all. And then as Jesus was going around Galilee teaching in the synagogues, he finally comes to Nazareth. He comes to his hometown. And what happens? Well, when the Sabbath day comes, he goes to the synagogue. He goes to church as his custom was. So Luke says in verse 16, and he's, he's given the privilege there both of reading scripture and preaching. And, and that's understandable because when you realize both his, his reputation, having been going around and being glorified by all, he was well known as a teacher by this point, and also because of his, his connection, of course, to Nazareth. And so someone gives him the book or the, the scroll as it was in those days of Isaiah, and he opens it and he finds the place or the places in Isaiah where these words are written, as Luke tells us in verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Beautiful words. Words mainly from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Words speaking of the promised Messiah and highlighting, highlighting his, his saving, his gospel saving ministry. And so Jesus reads these words, he, he gives the scroll back to the attendant, and then he sits down. It sounds a bit strange, but in those days in the synagogues, they would, uh, they would stand up to read scripture out of a, a, a sign of respect. And then when they preached, they would sit down as a sign of authority. And so Jesus sat down, and, and Luke tells us that when he did, everybody's eyes were glued to him. No one was sleeping. No one was sleeping that day in church. They were all waiting in eager anticipation to hear what Jesus, what their Jesus, the Jesus they knew as a child, the carpenter who likely made some of their furniture, they were eagerly waiting to hear what he would say about this text. And Luke summarizes what he said in verse 21. Jesus said this, 
this day is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing, in your ears. In other words, Jesus, Jesus was claiming that this text in Isaiah was speaking about himself. Jesus was claiming here to be the long-promised, spirit-anointed Messiah sent by God to save needy people. What an amazing claim. Imagine if you had been there. What would you have done? How would you have responded? Luke tells us how the people responded. They all bear him witness. They all heard what he was saying and they, and they testified to how, how, how faultless it was. They could not find any fault in it. And they marveled. They wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. There was something so beautiful, so attractive about them. He was preaching words of grace. He was preaching about God's gracious acceptance and deliverance of needy people. People who were poor. People who were blind. People who were held captive. People who were oppressed. This was a message of grace to sinners. You see, the background to this prophecy in Isaiah is God's judgment. God's judgment on Israel because of their sins. And so in Isaiah's context, the poor and the brokenhearted and the blind and the imprisoned and the oppressed refer to people in desperate need of salvation. Salvation from their sin. Salvation from God's judgment. And so God's promise in Isaiah 61 that he would send and anoint someone to save such people is a promise of grace. Of grace for hell-deserving sinners. And now in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus is claiming, he is claiming that someone is him. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of sinners. What an amazing claim. And the people responded with wonder, with amazement. You can almost, you can almost read between the lines, can't you, and hear them saying to each other, that, that was an amazing sermon. What a powerful preacher. But then comes the next thing they say at the end of verse 22. Is not this Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? When you first read it, it seems like an innocent question, but it's not. It's a question that's dripping with scorn and rejection and unbelief. Jesus exposes that in verse 23, and really the rest of the passage makes that clear. Yes, they enjoyed his sermon. Yes, they were impressed by it. Yes, they felt something of the power and the beauty and the wonder of his words, but they didn't accept his claim. What about us? What about you? What about me? Congregation, Jesus is not physically here in this room. But he is here. He is here. And he's repeating to us today the same claim that he made in the synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. He's saying to you and to me today, he's saying to you children and to you young people and to you older ones, that he is the long-promised, spirit-anointed Messiah sent by God to save hell-deserving sinners from their sins, from the guilt of them, from the power of them, and ultimately from the presence of them. That's wonderful news. That's gospel news. That's amazing news. 
It is right. It is right, beloved, to marvel, to wonder at such amazing grace. But then what? Wondering and marveling and admiring isn't enough. You have to respond. You have to respond to Christ's claim. Jesus claims here, he claims here in his word this morning to be the savior of sinners. He claims here in his word this morning here that he can save you. That he can heal you. That he can set you free from spiritual darkness and from bondage to sin and to Satan. He claims, he claims in his word this morning to be the one God has sent to proclaim good news, the good news of salvation, forgiveness, freedom to people who are in the prison of God's judgment. That's the claim Jesus is making in our hearing this morning. That's the claim you have to deal with. I have to deal with. And there's only two ways to deal with it. There's only two ways to respond to it. You either accept it, you accept his claim, and you flee to him in faith and in trust, humbly confessing and forsaking your sin, humbly confessing your need of him. Or you don't. You continue in unbelief. You continue in sin. You harden your heart. The last way is what the religious church-going people in Nazareth did. They didn't accept Jesus' claim. Why? Why didn't they accept it? Why don't people today want to accept Jesus' claim to be the Savior of sinners, to be a Savior for them? Well, there can be all kinds of reasons, but doesn't it ultimately, congregation, doesn't it ultimately come down to pride? You see, accepting Jesus' claim means admitting. It means admitting that you are a sinner, that you are helpless in and of yourself. And by nature, by nature, beloved, we don't like to admit that. We don't want to admit to our sins, and we don't want to admit that we need help, that we need a Savior. In this connection, I want to quote, it's a bit of a longer quote, but I want to quote here from a sermon I read this week on this passage. It's a sermon by Dr. Ligon Duncan, and he says this to those who refuse to admit their sins in their need of a Savior. He says, if you do that, if you refuse to own up to your sins, you're cutting yourself off from the good news. You're cutting yourself off from this free offer of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a churchgoer, but you're abusing your wife. You're a churchgoer, but alcohol or prescription drugs or illegal drugs are wrecking your world. But you're going to keep up the appearances. You're a churchgoer, but you're having an affair. You're a churchgoer, but you are worshipping at the altar of money or ambition or pleasure and a thousand other things. And you're going to keep up appearances because that's what we do. Then he says this. But Jesus just showed up at church this morning. And he said, I came. I came not so that people could could continue to paper over their sins and look good. I came to deal with those sins. 
And I came with good news for those, those sins. And my good news is not straighten up and fly right. My news is not your sinning, stop it. My news is not here are nine things that you need to do to get yourself right with God. My news is I'm here to do something about where you are. End quote. So maybe you go to church. Maybe you talk about the sermon. Maybe you can make yourself look pretty good. But congregation, the real question is this. Do you, do I, go to Christ? Do we accept his claim? If we do, if you do, and you won't try to cover up your sin, you won't try to deny your sin or to minimize your sin, You won't try to defend it or excuse it. And you won't try to fix it your way. You'll admit it. And you'll go to Christ with it. Because you accept, you believe his claim to be the savior of sinners. That's the right way to respond to Jesus' claim. But you see, the people in Nazareth didn't respond that way. They didn't accept his claim. The danger of rejecting Jesus is very real. We see that not only from his unaccepted claim, but also, secondly, his, his unheeded warning. We see this in verses 23 to 29. The people were rejecting Jesus' claim. They were refusing to believe it. And, and the Lord sees that. He understands that. And he cares enough. Get this. He cares enough about them to call them out. He cares enough about them to warn them. And he says to them in verse 23, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. You see what he's doing? He's exposing their unbelief. He's exposing their rejection of him. He predicts, he anticipates what they're going to say next. They're going to demand a sign. A proof that he really is the Messiah. That he really is the Savior. If he really is the Savior, then he has to prove it. He has to do a miracle here, like the ones that they had heard he supposedly did in Capernaum. His own word isn't enough. Now, we might say, we might look at that, we might say, well, what's so bad about that? Maybe children... You, your friend claims that he can run around the gym in less than eight seconds. Well, you're going to ask him to prove it. And you say, well, go do the run and I'll time you. You aren't just going to believe him. So what's wrong with the people in Nazareth wanting Jesus to prove he's the Savior by doing some miracles? What's wrong with it is this. They don't actually want proof. They don't actually want proof. They're just demanding proof as an excuse for their unbelief. For their rejection. Could it be? Could it be that's what you're doing? Maybe you hear Jesus' claim. You're even impressed by it. But you don't accept it. You don't believe it. You say you need more proof. More evidence that he really is the Savior he claims to be. You need to see a miracle. He has to do something special for you to believe him. He, he has to do something special for you to repent of your sin and put your trust in him. 
The problem you're claiming is, is that Jesus hasn't given you enough evidence. Listen to how Jesus responds to that kind of thinking in verse 24. Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. No prophet is accepted in his own country. In other words, the Lord says that, that what, what's happening to him in Nazareth is common. It's happened, it's happened to God's prophets over and over again. And it will continue to happen. And his point with this statement in the context of this passage is this. Your problem, he's saying to them, isn't a lack of proof. Your problem is a lack of humility. A lack of faith. The people's refusal to believe and accept Jesus' claim isn't because there was something wrong with him. It's because there was something wrong with them. It's because of their own proud hearts that refused to submit to him as a prophet. You see, the statement, no prophet is accepted in his own country, it's really a stinging condemnation of the people for their unbelief, for their rejection of him. And the Lord, in in verses 25 to 27, he drives that home by reminding them of two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. I'm sure, children, those, those names are familiar to you. And maybe you remember the stories that he mentions. He, he, he talks about the time during the reign of Ahab when, when Israel was suffering from a famine because of their idolatry, because of their Baal worship. He says that there were many widows in Israel then. But God sent Elijah outside of Israel to a widow in Sidon. Elijah asked her for some food. And at first she tried to to refuse because she was about to make her last meal for herself and her son. But then he told her to fear not, fear not. Make me some food first. And your barrel of, of flour and your jar of oil will not run dry as long until the Lord sends rain. And what did she do, congregation? What did she do, children? Do you remember? Did she say, can you give me a sign first? No, she didn't. No, she didn't. She believed his word. She made him food for himself, for him first. And she never found her barrel of flour and her, or her jar of oil empty. And later on, Elijah raised her, own, her son back to life. But he didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of that for any widows in Israel. And the same thing happened with Elisha and Naaman, the Syrian general who had leprosy. There were many lepers in Israel then, the Lord says. But only Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. Why? What was the difference? Faith. Naaman believed. He had first resisted, we know that. But eventually he believed Elisha's word that if he dipped in the Jordan seven times, he would be cleansed. The point Jesus is making here is that the people of Nazareth, the people of Nazareth are rejecting Jesus just like Israel as a whole rejected Elijah and Elisha. No prophet is accepted in his own country. Not because there's something wrong with the prophet. The Sidonian widow and the Syrian leper are testimony to that. The problem in Old Testament Israel was not Elijah or Elisha. And the problem in first century Nazareth was not Jesus. The problem was the people. The problem was their hearts. They were hearts. 
the rejection of Jesus was their own fault. No prophet is accepted in his own country. Isn't that a warning for us? Nazareth, of course, was Jesus' own country in a very literal sense. It was his hometown. But there's a sense, beloved, in which every church is Jesus' own country. Also this church. This is where he lives, in a sense. This is where he speaks. This is where he reveals himself. This is where he reasons together with us and says to us, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Congregation, what are we doing with that? What are you doing with that? Oh, let us take care. Let us take care never to reject him. Never to reject the Lord Jesus. And if you have been, if this morning this sermon finds you in the place of the people in Nazareth, then Christ is warning you because he cares for you. He's warning you to repent now. He's urging you to turn to him, to flee to him, to go to him now, even if you have to go to him crying, Lord, I believe. Help, help my unbelief. Jesus was warning the people in Nazareth, but they didn't heed it. They didn't want to hear it. Luke tells us in verses 28 and 29 that all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him onto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. Jesus' warning made the people furious. He was charging them with rejecting and not accepting him as a prophet and as a promised savior. And that implied that that they were rejecting God. And they didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to to admit their unbelief. They didn't want to acknowledge it as sin. They didn't want to humble themselves. So they didn't heed his warning. Instead of repenting of their sin, they tried to get rid of the Savior. They tried to push him off the cliff. They tried to kill him. Our congregation, we can't get get around the lesson in this passage, how very real the danger of rejecting Jesus is. But maybe you say, I would never do that. I would never do that to Jesus. What about when he comes into your heart and he starts convicting you of this sin or of that sin? What do you do? What do I do? Do you welcome him or do you try to get rid of him? Do you try to thrust him out of your heart or out of that particular area of your life? Isn't that what we do by nature? But our text is calling us not to do that. Our text is calling us not to refuse Christ's work of exposing and convicting us of our sin and of our unbelief. Our text is calling us not to refuse his warning like the people in Nazareth, but to heed it and to turn to him in humble repentance and faith because, because he is the savior of sinners. And so I ask you, are you heeding, congregation? Are you heeding Christ's warning? 
not to heed it is to reject him. It's a very real danger. But maybe you say, is it really that bad? Can't, can't, can't I worry about this later? Well, notice, notice with me one more thing from this passage. We come now to our third point. Notice not only Christ's unaccepted claim, not only his unheeded warning, but also his unsettling departure. We see this in verse 30. You can, you can really picture the, the mob almost at the edge of the cliff, leading Jesus, bringing him closer and closer to the edge, ready to throw him over. You can almost hear them yelling, away with him, throw him down. You can feel the suspense. Will they succeed? Will they kill him? But then suddenly in verse 30 we read this. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. That's it. No details. We don't know how he did it. He just did. He passed through the midst of them and left. There's something so serene, something almost majestic about Jesus here. But there's also something so very unsettling. He left. He left. Putting off repentance, putting off faith in Christ's congregation is extremely dangerous. Because there may come a time, there may come a time when Jesus leaves. There may come a time when he decides that his spirit will not strive with you anymore. You may sit here today and you might assume, if we so easily do, that we'll have another chance to believe in Jesus next week. He'll be here next week. He'll be here next year. He'll be here 20 years from now. And so we're tempted to think that we can delay repentance, that we can delay faith. It's not a big deal. We can worry about it later. But our text congregation is warning us, don't do that. Jesus can leave at any time. He can go his way. And he might, he might never return. As far as we know, he never again returned to Nazareth. They never again heard him preach there. They never again heard his claim to be the savior of sinners there. He came to Nazareth once and only once. But the people didn't want him. He came into his own and his own received him not. And then he left. He left and he never returned. Christ is here this morning, congregation. Right now. He is striving with you this morning. You have heard his claim to be able to save you. You can either accept his claim and confess your sins and believe in him, or you can reject him. But if you reject him, you need to know this. You need to know this. If you reject him today, you might never see him or hear of him again. That's what happened to the people in Nazareth. Let's not let it happen here. Don't let it happen to you. Don't harden your heart. 
Don't be like the people in Jesus' hometown. But listen, listen to Jesus. Admit your sin. Acknowledge your need. Humble yourself and come. Come to the Savior today. Come with your poverty. Come with your chains. Come with your blindness. Come with your broken heart. Come and find spiritual riches and healing and freedom and lights. Come and find grace and salvation because that's what he's here to give. That's why he came. That's why he suffered. You see, later when people again wanted to kill him, and when they shouted away with him, let him be crucified, then he didn't depart. No, not even when they mocked him as he hung on the cross, and when they said to him words eerily similar to what Jesus said the people of Nazareth would say. When they said to him, he saved others, let him save himself if he be Christ the chosen of God. Even then, he didn't depart. Instead, he poured out his soul unto death. He stayed on the cross. He refused. He refused to save himself then exactly because he was there to save others. Exactly because he had come to save sinners and rebels like you and like me. People who really belong on that cross. Well, then let us not despise. Let us not neglect his great salvation. Let us not reject him. For how then shall we escape? Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Amen.